Charles Dickens. He's not my favorite writer, but it must be noted that Mr. Dickens created some wonderful stories. Lots of people love A Christmas Carol. How many of you like A Christmas Carol, his story? Oliver Twist, anybody like Oliver Twist? That one's pretty popular. The musical's better. Um, My favorite Dickens is A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, Tale of Two Cities, story by Charles Dickens set amid the French Revolution. At the very end of the story, there's this flawed hero, Sidney Carton, And Sidney Carton exchanges his life for another. He takes the place of a noble who's about to be beheaded, and he goes to the guillotine in substitution of a man named Charles Darnay. I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to spoil the story for you. I heard somebody gasp over there. It's been 200 years you've had to read it. I didn't think the spoiler alert applied. Anyway... um, as Sidney Carton climbs up the guillotine of that first ever cancel culture, he, um, he gives a fantastic speech, and he says, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Close quote. That's great writing, and it's based on the biblical truth that always motivated Dickens. It has shaped many writers since. By the way, Darnay's uh, Darnay's substitution with Carton, that, um, that's, many writers have been influenced by that. A lot of you I know are fans of the Harry Potter books. J.K. Rowling based her character Severus Snape on uh, Sidney Carton. Uh, spoiler alert, you've had 20 years to read that one. Snape dies. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Carton's speech is a, is a principled inverse of Jesus' great command. Here's the biblical foundation for it. John chapter 15, Jesus says this to his followers. Verse 13, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. Sidney Carton of Dickens' writing is a principled inverse of that. Here's what I mean. He definitely laid down his life for another, but in real life, things were reversed from what they are in Tale of Two Cities. In real life, the perfect guy died for the wretched ones. Sidney Carton is a drunken reprobate who died as a substitute for a noble man. But the real issue in life is that Jesus, the only truly noble person, died in place of scummy humans. He was substituted for reprobates like us, whom he calls friends. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Let's see how this develops in the place where Dickens got his ideas in Scripture. It all starts with the idea today that we summarize with a little sentence in your notes. If you're, if you're online, you should have a place where you can pull up the, uh, the notes and you can look at those. If you're here in the auditorium, open up your bulletin you got when you came in and you'll see this little sentence, do the crime, do the time. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now add to that the punishment associated with falling short of God's glory. Ezekiel chapter um, 18, verse 4, the person who sins is the one who will die. Uh, the book of Romans will take that Ezekiel passage and develop it this way. It says the wages of sin is death. All of us have sinned. By nature we are all depraved. Raise your hand if you have never done anything wrong. Raise your hand if you have done something wrong ever in your life. And those of you who didn't raise your hand need to raise your hand now because you're lying. Very good. Look at how John summarizes the very sad truth. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are two reasons given in Scripture for why we sin. Number one, we are sinners by nature. Number two, we act in that nature and commit sins. We are sinners because we are human and because we are human, we sin, period. No exceptions except one. Jesus. More on him in a moment. 
The upshot is that every single person deserves the death of eternal separation from God. This is the justice of God. This is the right thing. Wrath is the only appropriate response for beings who are totally depraved. Probably no one captured human depravity better than Fyodor Dostoevsky um, in his book, Memoirs from the House of the Dead. It's 19th Century Literature Day at church, could you tell? Um, uh, his book, Memoirs from the House of the Dead, Dostoevsky says, the executioner's nature is found in every embryo. Uh, if you're more into video games than books, you can see the exact same message in the uh, story of Cyberpunk 2077, which I do not recommend. People are depraved, totally. There is no getting around it. That doesn't mean humans don't try to pretend that we're all good. Dostoevsky dealt with the most popular form of depravity denial. The most popular form of depravity denial is the idea that, that what is wrong for others, that may be wrong, but it's okay for me. He dealt with this in his book, Crime and Punishment. Uh, Raskolnikov, the main character of Crime and Punishment, is a murderer. He's actually a murderer two times over. But he writes an article that becomes very, very popular uh, in the story. He writes this article that claims that what is wrong for ordinary people is acceptable for extraordinary ones. Uh, by the way, this idea will develop later in, uh, in Nietzsche's uh, Ubermensch, the Superman. In the article, Raskolnikov used two examples. He used Napoleon and Muhammad as examples of people who were not considered depraved because they were so important that their murders didn't count as sin, like normal people. By the way, this split definition of sin is alive and well today, right? Just ask yourself, how many, how many politicians have you seen these days that give decrees that they don't follow, Right? That's, that's Raskolnikov. That's the split definition of sin. However, Dostoevsky thought things all the way through. In the end, Raskolnikov cannot get around his guilt by merely pretending that he's special. He knows. He knows in his conscience that he is wrong. So he ends up confessing his sinfulness to the person who has been most harmed by his crimes. And that's where people must begin. In recognition of our sin. David said it best. Psalm 32, starting in verse 3, David said, When I kept silent, my, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Uh, selah is a Hebrew word. We don't know exactly what it means. It seems to be musical notation that means to stop and think. Verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. <clears throat> one cannot get better until one confesses depravity. This is inherently understood by people. Children understand this. Look, why does Edgar Allan Poe's book, The Telltale Heart, still makes sense to school kids 200 years after it was written because everyone knows that we are all criminals and there is a price that must be paid. To pretend otherwise just makes you crazy. Now, I said we get back to Jesus, the one human who isn't criminal. Time for him to join the story. As we say in our notes, the substitute enters the scene. Look up here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin in context of 2 Corinthians, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, uh, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, quote from Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. This is a cause for wonder. 
for us, redeemed us. Look at the amazing term, uh, ginomai. Ginomai is what we translate um, might become in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, Ginomai means the process of being created or born. In in Greek, ginomai is used of uh, fruit that is developing and growing on a tree. It's used of an, an egg being fertilized and going all the way until it hatches. It's, it's something new being born. While we were electronically discussing this, uh, David Wade of our pulpit team sent me a great note. Look what David wrote. He said, Wayne, Guillaume brings me to tears of gratitude for our wonderful Savior and Lord. His sacrifice is made even more amazing when we think how we, objects of His appropriate divine wrath, we have our sin placed on him. Martin McDonald chimed in with this from our team. He said, Yenomai describes our transformation thanks to Jesus' substitution. Righteousness of God becomes our very nature and essence. We are born again, Yenomai, righteous. Not simply that now we have the ability to be good people. We ourselves, our very being, become the righteousness of God because we are in Christ. This is completely the work of God through Christ. All, all God's people said what? Amen. Amen. Jesus is our substitute. In late 2020, <clears throat> terrorists struck again in poor Nigeria. They took over 300 boys from a school. Did you see about this story? Kids were forced to march through the jungle for two days with very few stops for rest. They were given no food, no water. Mm. Now I want you to think. But before they were released, and that's wonderful that most of them were released, but before they were released, would you have taken the place of one of those kids, knowing that you were going to be made into a slave, maltreated, eventually killed? Would you undergo all that so one boy could be free? Now, before you answer, think about this. What if the kid you were replacing was absolutely evil? He was, uh, he was already committed to terrorism. He was already an absolute spoiled brat. He, uh, he, he burned your country's flag and, and hated you in particular. Would you, would you take his place then? Because that's what Jesus did. You see, unlike those Nigerian kids, I deserve my enslaved march to hell. But Jesus took my place. He substituted himself for us. A worship pastor named Bruce Carroll wrote a poem about substitution. He called it the Great Exchange. I really like this. He says, once upon a time on a hill far away, an unfair proposition before a righteous man was made. Could have changed his situation, but instead chose to obey at the Great Exchange. And eternity he traveled to be there at that place, the chosen destination to show mankind God's grace. His longing to redeem us could only be explained at the great exchange. At the great exchange, even then, he knew me and he bore such pain and he did it all for love. An undeserving servant who will never be the same since the great exchange. You do the crime, you do the time. It's only right unless you can find a substitute who enters the equation, and that changes everything. All right, now I know some of you cannot stand 19th century literature. I pray for you. Um, but just for you to get this idea of the substitute, let's go all the way to the 21st century, all right? We'll, we'll leave behind the darkness of, um, of Dostoevsky, and we'll go to the goofiness of national treasure. Here, here's the idea of a substitute, national treasure. That's right. The founding fathers believe the same thing about government. I figure their solution will work for the treasure, too. Give it to the people. Divide it amongst the Smithsonian, the Louvre, the Cairo Museum. 
there's thousands of years of world history down there, and it belongs to the world and everybody in it. You really don't understand the concept of a bargaining chip. Okay. Here's what I want. Dr. Chase gets off completely clean, not even a little posted on a service record. Okay. I want the, the credit for the fine to go to the entire Gates family with the assistance of Mr. Riley Poole. What about you? I'd really love not to go to prison. I can't even begin to describe how much I would love not to go to prison. Someone's got to go to prison, man. Well, if you've got a helicopter, I think I can help with that. Jesus took the punishment even though he didn't do the crime. And unlike Sean Bean, uh, Jesus wanted it that way. I would love not to go to prison. Someone has to go to prison, so Jesus did. This is the light that pierces our darkness, Jesus the substitute. And in response, we're going to light our fourth Advent candle of this season. This is the candle of substitution. We're going to light the fourth candle of substitution and as we light the candle, let's read the rest of the Romans 3 paragraph. Shall we? We read verse 23. Let's read the rest of the paragraph. Go to verse 24. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous. He would be just and declare just the one who has faith in Jesus. As we point out on the right side of our notes, the substitute enters and everything is changed forever. A number of things are disclosed here. First, humans are justified freely. Earlier in our wonderful word series, we met this word, this Greek word, dikaio. Dikaio is the Greek term we translate justified. It, it, it means made right. Now, there are a couple of different terms for, for being justified in Greek. This one is a, is a uh, legal term, a forensic term. So it has the idea, it carries the idea of escaping prison. I can't tell you how much I would love to not go to prison. That's dikaio, escaping punishment. And this happens freely, look at that, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Doreon is the Greek word that we, that we translate freely. Dorian means without causation and without guilt. Without cause, in, in other words, Dorian describes something that's totally free that removes guilt. And the freed one, no causation, the freed one did not pay, did not cause their freedom in any way. In, in context, Romans 3 is discussing faith in Jesus. It is by faith in Jesus that humans are justified according to God's righteousness. It's not earned by people. It is totally free. Fyodor Dostoevsky was very subtle in, in uh, bringing this point to light in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Um, in The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky had a character tell this story, strange story about an onion. You want to hear the story? Story time. Okay, story time, boys and girls. Here we go. Story time. From Dostoevsky, once upon a time there was a peasant woman, very wicked, I won't read it that way, I promise, okay. Once upon a time there was a peasant woman and a very wicked woman, she, you want me to read it that way, don't you? Very, she, yeah, all right, no, no, I'm not. And she died and did not leave a single good deed behind. The devils caught her and plunged her into the lake of fire. 
So her guardian angel stood and wondered what good deed of hers he could remember to tell God. She once pulled up an onion in her garden, said he, and gave it to a beggar woman. And God answered, you take that onion then and hold it out to her in the lake and let her take hold and be pulled out. And if you can pull her out of the lake, let her come to paradise. But if the onion breaks, the woman must stay where she is. The angel ran to the woman, held out the onion to her. Come, said he, catch hold, I'll pull you out. And he began cautiously pulling her out. He had nearly pulled her right out when the other sinners in the lake, seeing how she was being drawn out, began catching hold of her so as to be pulled out with her. But she was a very wicked woman, and she began kicking them. I'm to be pulled out, not you. It's my onion, not yours. As soon as she said that, the onion broke. And the woman fell into the lake, and she is burning there to this day. So the angel wept and went away, wrote Dostoevsky. Now, here's the really sad news. I have had Russian Orthodox people share with me that that story is an example of justification. It is nothing of the kind. Dostoevsky knows better. That's why, that's why he has the onion break. No human can emerge through damnation through our good deeds. We cannot hang on. On our own, our wickedness always breaks the onion. Always. I, I even had a Greek Orthodox priest one time with whom I was conversing at length about a number of things. He told me, he said, Wayne, like Dostoevsky's onion, each person has done some good that can be used to get them to a right relationship with God. No. No. I advised him to go read Dostoevsky and see what he was actually saying. Better yet, I said, read the book of Romans. Please, you, you read it with me. Romans 3, 23 and 24 again. You take the underlined text. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The onion breaks every time. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus alone. People who trust Jesus are justified freely by His grace. Amen? Also, the believers of old are covered. This is cool. Look at verse 25. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. David looked ahead, and he saw Messiah, and he knew his sins would be forgiven. Remember what we read in, in Psalm 32? Look at the verse 5 again. David said, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to whom, everybody? The Lord. That's Messiah. Yahweh Jesus. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. He believed that the Messiah, the Lord, would pay for his transgressions. He looked ahead and believed that his sins would be covered in Messiah's sacrifice. Isaiah had the same trust. Looking ahead to Messiah, Isaiah said this, chapter 53, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. And we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. Here's how my favorite seminary prof explained Romans 3.25 to me. When, when I was looking at this and I was studying the Old Testament and, and realizing that there are people in the Old Testament who are declared justified in the Bible, I asked my favorite prof, I said, how did salvation get applied to people before Jesus, before Messiah came? And he replied with this. He said, Wayne, salvation has always been by faith. Before Messiah Jesus, people were trusting by looking ahead to Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. 
Since Messiah Jesus, we look back to that substitution. And then, and then he added this. He said, it's like a credit card. I really like this illustration. He said, he said God passed over sin, Romans 3.25, by accepting the charges of sin on himself from all the Old Testament believers. Those charges built up until Jesus paid them. The sins of all believers, past and future, are covered by Messiah. Also, look at verse 26. Jesus solves one of the great riddles of all time, the riddle of justice and mercy. This addresses one of the, one of the great paradoxes of theology. God passes over sin, showing mercy, and yet God is also just, verse 26. And justice demands that a sin price be paid. How can God possibly be just and merciful? The justice-mercy paradox is really tough. It's a, it's a bit like the more widely discussed Astley paradox. Have you seen this one? This has been going viral on Twitter lately. Uh, what's your favorite paradox? If you ask Rick Astley for his copy of the movie Up, he cannot give it to you as he will never give you Up. However, in doing so, he lets you down, thus creating the Astley paradox. If you're not into 80s music, a Brit named Rick Astley sang a great song, Never Gonna Give You Up, Never Gonna Let You Down. And he danced like a loon in the whole thing. All right, anyway, um, that's the Astley paradox. The justice-mercy paradox is more significant. How can God possibly show grace and mercy to people and still be just? The answer is right here. Jesus was presented as a sacrifice. Just as Old Testament animal blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the mercy seat that was between people and God's law, so, so Jesus became the mercy seat covered with his own blood to cover the law. And unlike those Old Testament sacrifices that pointed to him, Jesus was completely righteous. Since Jesus is perfectly holy without sin, his sacrifice justifies the one who trusts him. This allows God to be merciful because only he sacrifices. At the same time, he's just since the price is paid in Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice. Think of it, think of it like this. So, suppose Rick Astley purchased a copy of Up For You, okay? He purchased one at great cost. Then when, when he handed that to you, he's not violating, he is not giving you up because he paid for it and he's not letting you down, thus solving the substitutionary sacrifice atonement problem. Jesus handles the justice mercy paradox, paradox by purchasing justification. He paid and his substitution changes everything forever. Amen? So what's our response? There are four appropriate responses when one understands this wonderful word substitution. The first is accept the substitute by faith. Stop trying to be God. Stop trying to pretend that you can hang on to the onion. You cannot. Receive the one who is doing for you what you cannot. Let's read responsibly uh, Romans 3.26 that we've been reading, and then we're going to add to it a later passage from Romans, Romans 6.23. You take the underlined text. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Bruce Carroll wrote that wonderful substitution poem from which we read earlier. Look at how he finished his work. He said, I walked that same hillside. As I knelt down to pray, he showed me all the wrong I'd done and the price he paid that day. And then I arose forgiven. His loss became my gain at the great exchange. Everything that mankind lost, Jesus has reclaimed. 
the pathway to eternity by His death arranged. And all of this He offers if you'll meet Him today at the Great Exchange. Close quote. Please meet Jesus there. Trust Him and accept the Great Exchange. Second, do good works. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, it notes this. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for Himself, a people for His own possession, eager to do good works. Jesus gave Himself as our substitute. He, he did so to redeem us, to cleanse us, and to make us eager to do good works. What are good works? What are good deeds? It's very simple. In the Bible, good deeds are those things which work toward one of the two biblical mandates. There are two great mandates in the Bible. The first one is most famously seen in Genesis 9-1, to fill the earth and bless it. That includes the world, human society, individual people. The second mandate is seen most famously in Matthew 28-20, which is to share the good news of Jesus' substitutionary atonement. Good deeds are things that work toward one of those two mandates or both. We're to be eager to do those things. So, ask yourself, are you eager to pick up trash? Do you joyfully give money to your church? Have you taken the time to play with the kids in your, in your neighborhood to invite them to have cookies in your yard? With whom are you sharing the gospel? Are, are you volunteering with the children or the youth at your church? Are, are you taking opportunity, appropriate opportunities, to talk with your family about Jesus and His sacrifice? Since Jesus has allowed us, undeserving us, to become the righteousness of God. We should be eager to do these things. Here's what I've learned. I, I don't know about you. Here's what I have found. I have found that most of the time when I am not excited about doing good works, it's because I have stopped being actively grateful for substitution. Now listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. There's our third response. Follow Jesus' example of substitution. We sacrifice ourselves for others. When I was a youth, I met a Medal of Honor winner. He had no legs because he had thrown himself on a grenade to save his company. We got to have a series of really great talks when I was a kid at Boy State. What amazed me most about this soldier was that he had absolutely no regrets. He said with conviction that he would do it all over again. And, and I, he said this many, many times, because I feel, he said, honored to follow Jesus. Now, hopefully, you will never be near a grenade in an Asian jungle, but the idea still applies. What can we do to follow Jesus' steps? There are opportunities every single day when you and I can sacrifice for others and do so in Jesus' name. And when we do so, we shine a light in the darkness. We shine the light of Christ's substitution. Remember Jesus' comment on His sacrifice that we read earlier in John 15? Do you remember that? We read, we read John 15, 13. We read, no one has greater love than this laid in his life for his friends. But in that passage, if you look at the context, Jesus is not just talking about Himself. He's also talking about all of those who follow Him. Let's read the whole thing. Look at verse 12. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down His life for His friends. Because of Jesus' love, I can love. I can be somebody who shows sacrifice. I can, I can light, live like a light in a candle of sacrifice even when I don't feel like it. When I would rather be lying on the couch reading or watching sports 
I can get up and play with the kids. And I can do so letting them know that I am playing with them because of how Jesus loves me. That's why I'm loving them. By God's grace, I can speak truth in love. When everyone else is being acerbic, I can sacrifice my desire. I don't always do this, but I can sacrifice my desire to be snotty back at them because I remember how Jesus loves me in my snottiness. Because of Jesus' substitution, I can take on someone else's burden and I can teach them how to lay their worries at Jesus' feet, right? In a thousand ways, I can love because Jesus loves me. All God's people said? Now, I need to give you a warning. This fourth response to Jesus' substitution is quite painful. Number four is really convicting. So you, you may wish to turn off the video feed now. Uh, oops, we had technical problems. This would be a great time to go to the bathroom. Um, if you're here on site, I'm, I'm giving you a chance. I'm stalling for you. I, all right, you're, you, you asked for it. Fourth response is to live out this phrase. You ready? Not my will, but yours be done. Consider Jesus' great statement in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is facing the pain of substituting himself for us, and he was understandably bothered, sweating drops of blood. And yet he, fully God the Son, said to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Say it with me, everyone. Not my will, but yours be done. Well, Peter applies that same statement to all followers of Jesus. Look here, 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for what, everybody? For God's will. We can live, we must live, not my will, but God's will be done. Think that through. If that Christmas package is lost and doesn't arrive in time, if I don't get what I want, if others don't like what I gave them, if I get sick, if others blame me for getting them sick, if people refuse my company and freeze me out because they're concerned about getting sick, when my side loses the contest, when the, when the diagnosis is bad, when cancel culture finally forces me up onto the scaffold, Will I be at peace because I rest in God's will? Not my will, but yours be done. Will I remember that Jesus took my sin and grants me God's righteousness? Because, folks, if I remember that, that makes all the difference in setting my heart at peace. Pray with me. Let's pray about this. Father, I want to pray for anyone, anyone, wherever they are, who's studying with us today. If they have never accepted the substitute by faith, Please draw them to you right now. Listen, friend. Dostoevsky had a great picture, but that's actually too much. Your, your and my capacity to get to heaven is not really even as strong as an onion. Think of it more like one blade of hair. There is no chance that we can in any way make ourselves right to God. Jesus loves you so much that he substituted himself in your place so that if you trust him, it's always by faith. You, 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 you're reborn. You become the righteousness of God in him. If you've never done so, trust Jesus right now.
If you just trusted Jesus as your Savior, raise your hand if you would, please. If you're at home, comment with your host. We just want to rejoice with you. Amen. Father, I pray that we will do good works, all of us Christians, that we will, do, that we will follow Jesus' example of substitution, that we will look for these incredible opportunities to lay our lives down as you have loved us. And Lord, oh, it's very, very, very tough, but I pray that by your grace, we will live out not my will, but yours be done. In Jesus' name, amen.